In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome, everybody, to episode 34 of Paw and Order. I'm Camille Lavchuk, joined, as always, by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Hey, Camille. How's it going? Not too bad. I just got back from a kind of a cool trip, partially vacation and partially work. I was in Europe, so I went to Zurich and a little bit of vacation in Lake Como and then Milan for a conference. And I got to say, it was pretty great. It sounded great. It sounded like uh, you were doing that in Edmonton here. I was just choking on smoke and uh, that was like three days worth of smoke inhalation, you know, poisoning or whatever that was. And now it's like we had a couple of nice days and now we've it seems like we've plunged back into midwinter. It's like 10 degrees outside. Oh, I feel bad for you because today is actually the first nice day of the year in Ottawa. It's 21 and it's finally like nice. It hasn't been this nice yet at all. Well, uh, I understand, Camille. It wasn't just, uh, it was mostly, let's be honest, it was mostly fun and games, but you tried to like, you know, do some work related stuff in there, didn't you? Yeah, well, one really cool thing is that in Zurich, we visited the offices of the Animal Law Organization in Switzerland. Uh, they're one of the biggest ones in the world, Tier im Recht, which means Animals and the Rights, a Foundation for Animals and the Law, basically. They have 18 staff members, two floors of a building, and a massive animal law library. It takes up like two rooms, and it's so well cataloged. It's, it's in many different languages and just incredible. So... I came home feeling very inspired by what we want to build animal justice into, which is hopefully 18 staff of our own someday. So, of course, you're not telling me anything I don't know, Camille, although you like to make it sound like you're the first person from Canada to ever go there. But, of course, I was there in 2016, so uh, I also visited Tirem Recht, so I know what you mean. It's a really cool office. The library is beautiful. Um, They have staff. They have people working there. God, what crazy ideas. All these things that uh, an animal law organization really needs. And they also have, Camille, $25 coffees that you can buy across the street because it's Zurich after all. Yeah, the prices were kind of <laughs> wild. Like I couldn't believe some of them, but so uh, what, you know, the it's only a nice way city. the only way the I've been told and I believe it's true and I say this to anybody who's going to Switzerland in the near future, um, the only way to survive a visit to Switzerland aside from having friends who generously buy you drinks occasionally um, is don't do any of the conversions when you're there. Like, just don't do them because, like, you'll literally lose your mind. And I'm not talking, by the way, like some fancy coffee, like, you know, some uh, superstar multi-layered frothy drink. I'm talking like a regular coffee at Starbucks is like $20. It's just the most insane thing I've ever seen. Yeah, best just to not think about it at all. Yeah, well, that's what you do. You just ignore it. You just spend as much money as you can. And you marvel at the wonderful uh, transit they have going through the city. Did you enjoy the streetcars, Camille? 
Yeah, the streetcars are great, very efficient. It's like a reasonably sized city, so easy to get around. And yeah, it was it was really great. So uh, so then we went to Milan after for a conference, a uh, conference that I've spoken about, I think, on the podcast before, but it's a conference about uh, rights for vegans, so people who practice a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle for ethical reasons, and also some legal barriers that vegan food products or vegans might face in other areas. So really interesting uh, conversations. It was previously hosted by a group called the International Vegan Rights Alliance, but they've just been absorbed by the UK's Vegan Society, which is a much bigger and better funded organization. So nice to see them putting some resources behind this, but very interesting conference. I spoke about the firefighter case that we've addressed on the podcast before, where the vegan firefighter is suing his employer over their failure to accommodate his beliefs. And there were some other cool talks too. Lots can of I, friends from around the world. How? How? Yeah. Is this a law conference per se, or is it a vegan conference, or is it just a little of both? It's it's mostly law. Like it's pretty focused on legal aspects, but there's uh, there's an element of accessibility to vegan food. So great presentation, for instance, by uh, a man from Portugal, the head of the Veg Society there, and they were working on making sure that vegan options were available in all public canteens. So anything that the state ran. And they were successful in doing that. So that's, you know, it's law in a sense, but it's kind of more policy. So there's a bit of that in it too. I think in the sense that we're always looking at these things, or at least I am, in the sense of how far we've come. It just amazes me that like in the past, you know, we had to sort of struggle to have an animal law conference. And now we're talking about a conference that's really segmented to essentially the legal aspects of veganism. Yeah, I know. It's getting awfully specific. And that's a cool thing. And speaking of conferences, I'll just use this opportunity to plug the fact that the agenda for our conference is now out. So the inaugural Canadian Animal Law Conference happening in October at Dalhousie University. You can check out the agenda at CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca and registration's open too. So if you want to grab a ticket, I encourage you to do so soon because they are already selling fast. Yes. And while you're doing that, you should decide what you're going to, which panels you're going to go watch because from the length of the agenda, it's going to take you from now until September just to decide which room you're going to want to sit in. I mean, there's that yeah. much content, Camille. Yeah, so many amazing speakers, both from Canada and internationally. So, yeah, I'm I'm going to have a hard time myself deciding. Yes, it's going to be quite something. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so after I got back, I spoke at the Ontario SPCA's conference in Niagara Falls a few days ago. That was pretty cool, Peter, because obviously as listeners of this podcast will know, they've given up on their enforcement responsibilities, which they've done for the last hundred years. And they're saying to the government, bring in something new. We're not doing this anymore. And we've been supporting that move and kind of had a court case involved in that as well. So it was interesting to be in the room. And we had a great panel discussion with me and a couple of folks from the OSPCA, where uh, we all kind of chatted about what the future of law enforcement in Ontario might look like. And there were some interesting ideas in the room. So I'm feeling optimistic about that. And elsewhere, and, I can tell you, Camille, uh, I haven't even fully related this to you, but there are discussions of the exact same sort taking place here in Alberta. There's just a lot of concern, obviously, since 
since the Edmonton Humane Society pulled out of the business in Edmonton um, that the model that's been put in place might not be optimal. And uh, I can't reveal everything yet because it hasn't been announced, but there is a lot of talk about ways to do things differently. So it's encouraging. Uh, We might not have found all the solutions yet, but it's encouraging that we're continuing to talk about the way to do things better. Yeah, it really is. This was a much needed conversation. And sometimes it just takes a few big moves to prompt those discussions. Absolutely. And you are coming out this way, aren't you? We talked about this last episode, how you are specifically avoiding Edmonton, you're only going to Calgary on this trip, which I take very personally. Yeah, sorry, Peter, I've seen you enough this year. No. (laughs) No, I'm off to Calgary VegFest. I'm speaking at Calgary VegFest. It's on June 15th. I'm talking, I think, at 1 p.m. and maybe later in the day on a panel, too. Uh, I'm going to be talking about animal law issues, obviously, but more specifically, how we can all be engaged in changing the law and being Mm. politically active. So really good uh, kind of discussion to have right before we go into an election this fall. So come out if you're in Calgary. And Peter, I can tell you the other thing I'm going to be doing for sure while I'm in town is stopping by our favorite store, The Grinning Goat. Yes, you are. Fantastic. Where is that? On 17th Avenue or 17th Street? Have I got that right? 17th Avenue Southwest. They have a storefront there. They sell amazing vegan footwear, apparel, body products, all kinds of stuff. They're also online. Uh, Grinning Goat is a sponsor of this podcast, so you can check them out at grinninggoat.ca. They ship across the country, and if you use the discount code PAW15 at checkout, you will get 15% off as a listener of this podcast. So please do go check them out and um, help show our sponsors that we can send some dollars their way. Here, here, we need it. Speaking of um, our listeners and what they can do, Camille, I notice it's not on our, our show notes. And yes, we do have show notes here at the Pawn Order uh, headquarters. Um, but we forgot to mention on the show notes, Camille, last uh, episode, I did a shout out to our listeners to ask them for help. And it has been a recurring theme of this show, though I have not actually brought it up in quite some time, that I am still not actually convinced that we have listeners. So every once in a while, I like to shout out to all the listeners, to see if they'll actually do something. And to my complete and utter surprise, Camille, when we asked for a special name for shows of a news-filled nature, we actually got a response. You're right, we did. We had a few suggestions. A few suggestions from one listener. Let me be clear. The rest of you listeners, assuming there are any of you out there, I remain disappointed. I, I, I think we could have gotten more. But before, you know, I don't want to stress the disappointment. I want to stress the excitement that someone did respond with a pretty good suggestion, actually. Yeah, it was. And I don't have that in front of me. So you're going to have to tell us what it is. Oh, God, I don't have it in front of me either. I was hoping you could do it, Camille. This is so embarrassing. It was (laughs) was in the show notes, Peter, so not in my brain. It was nose for the news or something. It was nosing through the news or nose for the news. Um, Because I'm not recording in front of my computer, I'd have to get up to check it. So I'm not going to do that. I think it was nosing through the news. We'll have to talk about this in our next show. But I could tell you, it was a good suggestion. And I would love to have another suggestion or two so that we could put it to some kind of vote or something and try and decide. But I, but I liked it. And I do think it's the kind of um, 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 title that we need, because I think we'll do those types of shows from time to time in the future. So it'll be cool if we have a name. And what we should do is get our producer to get some kind of cool, you know, intro music whenever we're nosing through the news. Mm, or or yeah, something like along we- those lines. 
Yeah. Well, we may have actually had another one too. I feel like I saw an email come in that I haven't responded to yet because I was on vacation. Ooh, so. multiple we'll, we'll engagements this... from listeners. Wow. I'm excited. Yeah. We'll bring this back next episode. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. All right. All right, Peter. What have you been up to? I hear you have a paper coming out. Well, I've just been working, Camille. Unlike you, I don't get to go gallivanting to around Europe. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know the last time I was in Europe, and I can't even imagine the next time I'll get to gallivant. Oh, wait a minute. That's like next week, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're going You're going to Germany for a month, so don't, don't give Not me that. Not next week. Sorry. That's in a few. I have, to, I have to finish like a million projects before I go. But yes, I will be going to Europe. Um, and what I've actually finished, what I want to talk very briefly about is I, a paper that I wrote it feels like ages ago, to be perfectly honest, but that's how long the publication cycle is. We could do a segue here into the beauty of peer-reviewed publications and law and how long it takes for things to get out, but we won't do that. I'll just say it's been in the pipeline for a while. But um, since I just commented on the final proofs this week, I'm fairly confident that this paper will be making it out to public consumption fairly soon. And essentially, it is to my knowledge, the first paper to really look at the legal implications of um, the way in which we use the National Farm Animal Care Council to create regulations um, for animal use, especially in the farmed animal context, although it's in it does address a few other contexts as well. So I'm really happy about that paper, and I'm really happy that it's finally getting out. I'm happy about that too. That's uh, really good news because I think that the NFAC codes are of utmost importance for anyone working on animal law, in particular farmed animal law issues in Canada. Uh, Peter, I just looked it up quickly because you and I did actually an entire episode on the NFAC codes of practice for farm animals. It's back episode 16. So if anyone wants to learn more about what those are and why they are in some ways counterproductive, uh, in some ways perhaps useful, check out episode 16. Yeah, I, I continue to be surprised by this because I think when people hear about, oh, NFAC codes, they start to yawn or nod off or they start to talk about this, that, and the other thing. I'm actually surprised. Like, for example, um, unless I miss something, I don't believe anybody's talking about NFAC codes at the Animal Law Conference in September. And to be perfectly honest, that doesn't surprise me. I think this has been a really underexplored area of research. And I think that is the reason I wrote this paper was because that was a concern to me. I think we we have essentially, um, I, I hate to say accepted, uh, because I, I think that's troublesome that we have accepted that NFAC has a role to play, and we've accepted the role that they're playing. And let me stress that province after province is starting to use NFAC codes as a way of sort of legitimizing certain types of animal uh, use. And I think that's of concern. I think there needs to be greater study even beyond what I've done. This was a preliminary paper. Um, and I think that's those studies really need to take place if we're going to understand the role that NFAC is playing. Because as much as any other body in this country, they are looking at farm animal uh, uses and notionally at farm animal welfare. And I think we need to be on guard to understand how this body works and understand the challenges that it poses for animals. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at at the heart of this is an issue we talk about on this podcast and other places often, which is essentially the privatization of animal law. We're allowing public bodies to be sidelined and private bodies to set the standards that uh, are nominally adhered to. So very important issues, raises rule of law issues, uh, 
obviously of utmost importance for animals. So I'm looking forward to seeing your paper in print, Peter, and I hope it'll inspire others to continue writing about this. Yes, and on a good news front, because I've been complaining about all the work I have to do uh, recently, I can say that I have alluded uh, on this show a couple of times to a a vet negligence case that I was working on, and I'm very pleased to uh, say that, unfortunately, because of the way these things work, I can't talk about the case in detail, but I can tell you that it's settled, and it's settled on fairly good terms for both the veterinarian and my client. And the reason I think that's good is, to be honest, as we've talked about again on a past episode in quite some detail, these cases are hard to sustain. You've got to use all sorts of sort of extra legal pressure to convince veterinarians that it's in their interest to settle, because quite frankly, as we know, the value of the animal, no matter how badly it was harmed by the vet's action, is usually regarded uh, with very little respect by the law. So I think it was uh, really good that we're able to at least start getting better results, even if they're just settlement results. Uh, I'm pleased that we're able to do that for the client and and, uh, for the animal in this question. Well, congratulations on getting a good result for your client. And sounds like it was as best as you could have possibly done in the circumstances. So that's good to hear. Well, I always advise settlement. So you know, that's, I I just always think going through the legal system is you just don't want to do it unless you absolutely have to. So anyway. Yeah, no, it's expensive and not much to gain if you can settle. Yeah. And of course, I've also been working very hard on our topic of the month of the week or the the podcast. So I don't have to speak about it in detail, but obviously um, the Lucy case, uh, which we're going to talk about as our main topic. uh, If you haven't heard, I hope you did. uh, The Lucy case was uh, resolved again by the Alberta Court of Appeal. We'll talk about it in our main segment in some depth. But uh, obviously, I was doing quite a bit of um, national media, radio, uh, sort of trying to talk about the implications of the case and what it means uh, going forward. And of course, I'm also, uh, because this case is coming out of Edmonton, uh, where I live, uh, I've been able to meet with the parties to the case and the lawyers, and we've had discussions about what comes next. So I guess we'll stay tuned for that in our main section of the show. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting conversation about that case. Okay, well, that's Good to hear. A good segue into a shout out that I want to give to our three new Patreon patrons, Peter. Three. So three, Camille. Three. We only got one suggestion. We only got one suggestion for a news thing, but I'll take three Patreon, new Patreon people any day. Thank you so much, people. Good. Well, thank you guys very much. So it's Elise, Aaron, and Jordan have joined our Patreon account this month as supporters. If you haven't checked it out already, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash order. You're able to make a sustainable monthly donation to the show to help us keep it running, help us uh, do an even better job of bringing it to you every couple weeks. So please do feel free to leave a contribution if you want. And a huge shout out and thank you to everyone who's already done so. Absolutely. And I should also add, as much as we love Patreon, and we we really love Patreon, a reminder that we could also uh, use more reviews if you love Pawn Order, especially on the, the, I say, Camille, the iTunes page, but from what I understand, it won't be the iTunes page for long. It will be called something else. Uh, But I think they called it Apple Podcasts now. Yes, I believe it will still have places for reviews. I don't think it's substantively changing. I think they're just spinning off the three types of things that they you know, sell or, you know, host. Um, but we, we love to have, uh, new reviews and we got a review Camille very recently 
from Young Blood Lover, who said, Love the analysis of animal law issues. A great regular listen to keep in the loop about animal law issues in Canada. Thank you so much, Young Blood Lover. We really appreciate those types of words. It keeps us motivated to do what we're doing. Yeah, thank you very much. So if you're listening and you haven't left a review already, please feel free to do so. It helps other people find the podcast and uh, is a really good thing for us. So we appreciate all of them. All right, great stuff. So let's move into the news for today. We've got a very heavy legal dimension to the news because there have been some uh, cases coming down. As as I said, we're going to leave uh, the Lucy the Elephant case to our main topic, but there have been some other cases, Camille, that have that that I I pulled out because I thought they were they're very recent cases. First of all, they were decided in the last couple of weeks, and I think they have some interesting things to say about animal law more generally. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the first one we're going to speak about is a British Columbia Court of Appeal case, the Queen and JT. Interestingly, Peter, this case is actually argued at the appellate level by a Crown attorney who's a friend of ours, Crystal Tamusiak. Hi, Crystal, if you're listening. Uh, and you know, the I think the facts aren't too important. It was essentially a you know a case of a, an individual who was charged with a variety of pretty serious domestic abuses against his family. One of those abuses involved kicking a dog repeatedly. Yeah, and and we've seen this before, and we've actually talked about it on this show. There's often a connection. If somebody's violent, they're violent to animals and they're violent to humans. That uh, tends to be a very common theme. And what we had in this particular case is a person who was uh, essentially found and the trial judge found in the case that uh, the, 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 the accused kicked his dog regularly, regularly, Camille. Seems to me like yeah, regularly. A, an open and shut case of cruelty. But alas, this is a criminal animal law that we're dealing with. And that was not the case in this instance. No, no, the judge actually found, despite his acceptance that the dog had been regularly kicked, he wasn't sure that that kicking rose to the level of the pain, injury, or suffering required by the criminal offense of Section 445.1 of the Criminal Code, which is inflicting pain, injury, or suffering unnecessarily on an animal. I just, that blows my mind. Well, so to put it in legal terms, um, you need to prove both the mental intention to do something and the physical uh, element of pain and suffering and injury. And the reason I wanted to highlight this case, and by the way, Camille, there are other cases like this. And and probably, let me, because before I go too far ahead, let me just say that the British Columbia Court of Appeal case where we found this, it was decided um, last, a couple of weeks ago, it's uh, our... All cases uh, in criminal law are start with an R, R versus JT. Um, and let me just say that the Court of Appeal doesn't deal with this issue because it's not raised on appeal. So we're really just talking about the trial judge's decision that pain and suffering wasn't proven. And, and we've seen this before. Most of the time, the hardest part of proving cruelty to animals is the mental element, whether or not you were willfully caused the pain and suffering. But in this instance, it was pretty clear that what the guy was doing was willful. That wasn't really the issue. The real issue was whether there was pain and suffering that could be proven. And what's unfortunate to me about this and other cases that we've seen like this is essentially what they're saying is the dog couldn't testify. That's really what they're saying. Like there's evidence of, you know, how the dog reacted to being kicked. And I think we could all understand how a dog would feel about being regularly and repeatedly kicked. And yet the judge found that because we, we couldn't get evidence from the dog, there was no proof of, of harm or suffering. 
Yeah, and this is obviously really problematic because it imposes an extra, extra burden on someone who's trying to prove this type of case. They would have to call special veterinary evidence or other type of expert behavioral evidence to prove in a case like this that the dog actually suffered since the dog can't testify. And I think that is overkill. I think that judges, and there are some cases as well to support the position that judges can take judicial notice of the fact that when you kick an animal, it hurts, it causes pain, it causes injury causes suffering. So the fact that the judge in, the, in this case went the other way is, is, is troubling. But like you said, Peter, this is the field of criminal animal law, and judges often twist themselves into pretzels not to convict. Well, let me just add a couple of other points about that that I think are worthwhile. We did a blow-by-blow, blow, Camille. You were not present for the show. I did it with guest host um, Sophie Gaillard. I can't remember the number. But um, we did a blow-by-blow blow discussion of the leading animal law or animal cruelty case in the country, which is a case by the name of R versus Menard. And, and that case has a lot of difficulties. But I would say one of the strongest points in the case, and if you go back to the podcast, I specifically remember both Sophie and I bringing it up and saying, yeah, that's one of the strongest parts of the case, is that the, the, the court found that the pain and suffering that had to be shown in order to convince had to be just above the minimum level of discomfort. And the reason they did that is because ultimately, if you go through the rest of the test for what's considered unnecessary suffering, what the court realized is that you can then balance the, the extent of the pain and suffering endured by the animal against the need to inflict it. Now, let me just say, Again, if you go back and listen to that podcast, there are a lot of problems with that. There's a, that's, that's the way animals tend to be, you know, endure a lot of pain and suffering because we have good reason to do so. But in a case like this where you're dealing with a guy who's just sadistic or malicious, the test works in the favor of the animal because essentially there is no legitimate reason for deciding to just go and kick your dog gratuitously. So to me, that's the number one reason why this case is so disturbing. But a second reason I would add why it's disturbing is that this wasn't a single incident. This was a guy who, according to the trial judge, regularly kicked his dog. Had this judge been willing to go a little bit more outside the box, let's assume, Camille, for the sake of argument, that we were unable to prove that there was physical suffering by the animal. Being regularly kicked... I, I bet you, Camille, they could have proved that there was emotional or psychological suffering by the animal, and I would have liked to see those things put forward as well, even if you can't show that there were bruises, pain, or broken limbs. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good point. The idea of emotional or psychological suffering is one of those emerging areas in the in the field of animal prosecutions. And it's a really important one because, you know, that there, <laughs> there's that saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I, I think that in reality, uh, oftentimes psychological suffering is much more serious than than physical suffering that, that someone might endure. Physical suffering might last a minute, but the psychological fear and terror that one feels at wondering if you're going to be kicked tonight or, or if it's going to be your lucky day and you won't be, I mean, that's the kind of thing that stays with you all day long. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've animals... all seen we've all seen dogs. If you've ever been to an animal shelter or you've ever had any connection with dogs, you're going to, any dog that's been physically kicked over a long period of time is going to show emotional scars from that. Absolutely. Behaviorists can detect it in an instant. Yeah. So that was really, that was really uh, a sort of upsetting little uh, case. And the other case is sort of a mixed 
bag, Camille. I wanted to bring it to your attention because, again, I believe we spoke about this case uh, on on a prior issue episode of Paw and Order, but it's it's possible I, I could be mistaken because I've spoken about no, this No, I case. think you are talking about another one. I know which one you're thinking of, and it, this is, yeah, this is new. Okay. But. Well, this is a case from my home province of Alberta. It is called uh, uh, R versus Schultz. You can find this one online. This one was also very, very recently decided, and it is it was a, a very little interesting uh, case that I wanted to bring people's attention because it says a lot of interesting things about animals. Um, quite, quite frankly, I think a lot of the things they say are good, although there are some uh, moments in it. This is a sentencing case for a couple that has essentially, um, boy, left many of their animals to die or nearly die. Essentially, they had what they called some kind of, they seem to refer to it, Camille, as some kind of hobby farm slash sanctuary. Yeah, yeah. The animals were kept essentially as pets. They weren't being used for husbandry in any way. Uh, they they had about a hundred animals, it seems. Many of them exotic animals like llamas. Uh, they I think they had a camel as well. So there were lots of animals. They were essentially all being starved to death. Uh, many of them were body score of 0. 0.05. So there's a scale from one to nine indicating the body condition of an animal that's often used to assess uh, whether they're getting proper nutrition. And the vets said that some of these animals were in the 0. 0.5 uh, spot on that score. So that's obviously pretty bad. Um, a camel actually, I believe it was a camel, Peter, actually did die. They told the uh the accused people who were convicted to provide additional food to the camel. I don't think that happened. And the vets returned later and the camel had died of starvation. So pretty disturbing stuff. Yeah, a few of the animals had to be killed. What's kind of amazing, and I guess uh, credit should be given here to the SPCA that sees the animals, is that uh, according to the judgment, most of the animals made a physical recovery. Um, only a few animals uh, had to be uh, euthanized on site, and the rest actually seemed to have recovered. That was regarded by the judge as a mitigating factor, which is kind of interesting. Um, but but I wanted to talk about a couple aspects of this case. First, I want to do a, a point that's been bugging me for quite some time, that the Alberta Animal Protection Act is one of the few pieces of provincial legislation in this country that does not include the option of jail, no matter how bad the conduct was uh, towards the animals. And um, in this case, what the, the Crown tried to do was get around that problem and still ask for jail by suggesting that a general piece of regulatory legislation that provides for uh, imprisonment in Alberta could be applied to this piece of uh, this Animal Protection Act uh, violation. And I was skeptical of that at the time because it seems to me that the Animal Protection Act makes it pretty clear what the penalties are and the judge quickly or not so quickly quite a few paragraphs dismissed this argument so what we're left with in Alberta is again uh, a very clear uh, judgment suggesting that you cannot go to jail for harming animals if you're prosecuted under the Animal Protection Act. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, we can debate the merits of that, whether jail is appropriate. Uh, some situations it may be. I, I don't know if I think it would have been in this situation. Uh, I'm sort of of the view that it's not usually a useful tool to protect animals. But the fact remains that um, Alberta does pretty much stand alone in this regard. 
Well, except for the Northwest Territories, but that's for other reasons, as we know. Yeah. But 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 still, yeah. I actually, I think the judgment on the whole had a lot of good things in it. And I actually think as a sentencing judgments go, it's quite good. Um, I think the fine that was imposed was very hefty and reflected the fact that so many animals were harmed um, in the circumstances. Essentially, you had a $15,000 fine imposed upon two individuals, which is, is quite high, especially when you read through the judgment and see the extent to which these people are actually working, which was not very much. It was a pretty hefty penalty to recognize recognize what they had done. Um, I particularly liked the sections of this judgment, Camille, where the judge really tried to talk about the changing attitude to animals and frankly, um, cited quite a bit from Chief Justice Fraser's dissent in the Reese decision, which again, we're going to talk about as part of our main topic, which I just goes to show you, I think that when you make it's sort of like what we talked about um, a couple of weeks ago interconnectivity of these judgments. You have a judgment in Reese that's about the standing of an elephant and the ability to contest things. And then a couple of years later, a judge uses that language to essentially explain why he needs to impose punishments upon people who neglected their animals. Absolutely. And that's why judicial statements like that, even if they're in dissent, as Catherine Fraser's words were, are hugely important and they really set the tone. And if a lower court is looking for something to sort of hang their hat on or looking for guidance, they can be very influential. Um, I'm sure that played into the judge's decision to impose a lifetime prohibition on ownership of these uh, of these individuals. So they can't acquire any more animals except owning one dog jointly who has to be checked out and approved by authorities uh, or a veterinarian, I believe, before they can they can go ahead and own that dog. Yeah, so that I, was meant, I meant I meant to point that out, too. I thought that was excellent, actually. That was this was essentially a lifetime order, by the way. He didn't even go for the 20 year prohibition. He, he it was it was really good. He talked about a 20 year prohibition. And then if you notice in the judgment, he goes on to say they can't have custody from any animals for the remainder of their natural lives. So he actually imposed a lifetime prohibition with the exception of this one dog. And it was very creatively done. I, I'm always pleased when judges use some creativity. Essentially, he allowed them to have the dog. The dog had not been neglected to any extent they could see and essentially said that they have to, from what I can tell, they have to provide the SPCA with confirmation every year that they have possession of this dog. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty big deal. I, I don't know if I've really seen that in a judgment before. I've never seen so. that. I'm not between you and I, Camille. I'm not convinced it's legal, but hey, it's like because it's an ongoing, essentially, it's an ongoing commitment in perpetuity. As long as they own a dog, they have to continue to bring, you know, veterinary confirmation that the dog has been treated properly. But hey, I'm not going to appeal it, Camille. I think it's a great thing. Yeah, yeah, really positive thing for animals, for sure. There's a couple other points I wanted to note in it, some things that were kind of a little contradictory in a sense. Uh, so the first one, so he, the judge goes through some mitigating factors and some aggravating factors. Um, one of the aggravating factors is he says, I'm also satisfied that the Schultzes bore a very high degree of responsibility for the neglect of their animals. Those animals were not essential to the well-being of them in the way that they might be for a rancher or an even an exotic animal dealer. Uh, they were not kept in order for them to earn a living. So I kind of, I don't like this. I don't like that it, it's aggravating that they were keeping the animals for fun, essentially. It, because it implies that anyone who was keeping animals for a commercial purpose, it's sort of less serious if I, offenses I, are committed in relation to them. Uh, so I'm not a fan of that. I did I did and, note that and cringe a little bit. 
Yeah. And then, but strangely, later in another paragraph, actually the same paragraph on mitigation, he notes that the Schultzes kept their animals for reasons other than profit. So however inadequate their care may have been, the possession was compassionate as opposed to profit driven. So there's kind of a contradiction there. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to understand and wrap my head around the two statements. There's there's a lot of things in here that are weird and 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 I could bring up another contradiction in the case. It's it's kind of weird to me. Sorry, I don't mean to uh, to um, you know I'm always wary of impugning the the what the prosecution did in this case or whatever. But it's weird that the prosecution tried to get jail time when it seems to me that this is a classic case in which they could have proceeded under the criminal code. There was no impediment. I mean, the trial judge finds that not only uh, did they commit severe acts of neglect, they knew that the animals were suffering, which is the hard part, which is why so many prosecutions for neglect go under the provincial law, because the criminal law requires that added step that they have to actually know. So they have to be cognizant of what animals need, and they have to be cognizant of the fact the animals are suffering. But the judge finds they knew all that. So then why didn't you just proceed under the criminal code anyway? That's the part I don't understand. Ah, the perpetual question. Why didn't they just proceed under the criminal code? I wish I knew. Why? If only we knew, Camille. If only we knew. Well, anyway, it's a good case. I kind of liked it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now we've got a whole bunch of other news to get oh through, God, so let's try to speed through this crazy. so we can get through our main topic. All right, so uh, an update on federal political legislation. We have bills to ban whale and dolphin captivity and shark finning that I believe are going to pass next week. So we are getting very, very close to a huge victory. As you will have noted, if you've listened to us talk about this before, this is important for whales and dolphins, important for sharks, but important symbolically for animal rights in general, because Parliament has never before passed any serious animal protection legislation. So this is big news. I suspect we're going to have a lot more to talk about on this regard next episode. Did we mention C-84 as well, Camille? We've talked about it many times. But we do know now, because we got an invitation to talk about C-84, that uh, C-84, of course, is the bestiality bill um, that is going to the Senate. And it sounds like they really want to move it along as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So we are expecting that to to pass before the end of the session, too. So that's good. The only animal bill that um, had a reasonable shot of passing and won't, looks like, will be the cosmetics testing legislation. And we'll talk more about that in the future episode, maybe. It's it's kind of disappointing. It just moved too slowly to get to where it needed to and cross the finish line. But at least there's support from um, all the parties in some capacity to get it passed at some point down the road. I think, yeah, and I was reading Nathaniel Erskine Smith was uh, tweeting about it, and I think he was... I think he was making it sound like it was a foregone conclusion that this bill is not going to survive. It's just not yeah, there's it. there's pretty much no way, just timing-wise. It still hasn't gone through the committee stages in the House of Commons, and that takes some time. So we've got two weeks left, basically. All right, we've got an update on our uh, big story that we did last uh, episode on the SPCA of Montreal and the fact that they did a major raid on a uh, Quebec zoo it turns out not only the animals unsafe, so are the workers. That's right. The Workers Safety Board has ordered the zoo to close because it was not safe for the workers who were caring for the animals because there was a risk of contact. And, you know, we see this all the time in in zoos uh, that employees are asked to care for animals who are exotic animals. They are dangerous to humans. They don't belong in captivity. And of course that imports a risk for anyone involved in that situation. 
so I like this story a lot, Peter, because it shows that it's it's not only just the pure animal law questions that we need to concern ourselves with. Strategically, there's other reasons to look at different pieces of legislation and other ways to you know shut down zoos, uh, go after farms, go after facilities that are using animals. They're often bad for people, too. Yeah, I remember. That brings me back, Camille. I, I don't know if you've read this book. You probably have. But like way back in the early days when I was like just trying to devour everything there was about animals, I read Fast Food Nation. And of course, Fast Food Nation is just this long, you know, story about like every aspect of what's wrong with fast food and the nation and essentially it was going through all the animal abuses and then showing how you know all the the labor violations in terms of employees and immigration violate it was just amazing how all these things were connected it really is and i recently read every 12 seconds by timothy patcherat he uh, goes undercover in the slaughterhouse and works there for the better part of a year just to see what he can see as a sociologist and has a lot to say about the way the workers uh, are treated and the conditions they endure too. So really interesting um, stuff, but good to see this move. Fantastic. And we've got one last story um, to talk about involving the, uh, a pig farm in British Columbia and some undercover uh, or covert investigations with video that were taken in the pig farm. And despite what looked like some pretty horrendous abuse, the SPCA has decided not to recommend charges. Yeah, and they obviously are concerned by the conditions depicted in the video. This is a video from a pig farm in the Fraser Valley. I believe it's the same one where we spoke about a few episodes ago. There was a large uh, protest, essentially an action called Meet the Victims, where people occupied the farm. And they did so out of concern over what this video saw, uh, this video revealed. But the SPCA is not in a position to proceed with charges, apparently, because they don't know who shot the video. So it's a little bit different from other undercover investigations Mm -hmm. where somebody maybe had a job at a facility and can identify what Mm. they saw on tape uh this situation they're not able to do that so i I don't think from what i understood i I don't think they could they could authenticate the time either i think it was very difficult to uh to uh to to without without further evidence from someone willing to come forward and talk about it i think they were unable to to put together the details that they would need in a criminal prosecution Yeah, I think that's the case. And for those of you listening who haven't practiced criminal law, uh, proving the date and the time that something took place. Yeah, very, very important. You can't uh, win a case without that information. I I think that takes us, Peter, to our main topic. All right, let's get into it. All right. And for our main topic today, we're going to talk about the latest Lucy the Elephant case out of the Alberta Court of Appeal. Back to your home province, Peter. Again, yeah, this is a huge case, and uh, it was pending for over a year, which means that uh, it was heard, um, I believe it was late winter um, in 2018, and took over a year to be decided. Yeah, that's right. We've been waiting for quite some time to hear the result of this. So why don't we give our listeners a little bit of background on this case, but also the preceding case, because it has a bit of a lengthy history, and also the the whole issue of Lucy the elephant herself. So Lucy is an elephant who's confined, held captive at the Edmonton Zoo. She's been there for a long time. She is, uh, how old is she now? She must be 46 or so. She, She is Canada's last elephant in captivity. I, I, no, I, no. I was, no, that's what they a told few. me. Where are really? the others, There's Camille? a few. There's some in African lion safari, and I think a couple in Quebec, too. 
All right. I was told, I was told by, you know, I met with the people doing this case that she was the last one and I couldn't believe that either. So apparently I got flawed information. Well, maybe I'm wrong. We can look into it after. But at any rate, we, one thing we do know is that she's the northernmost elephant, certainly in North America, and I think in the world. Mm. Edmonton, as you know, since you live there, Peter, is freaking cold in the winter. And elephants aren't, aren't cold weather animals. Uh, in addition to that circumstance... Lucy has been kept by herself for quite some time now. The, she had a companion previously, but that elephant was shipped somewhere else to be used for breeding. So Lucy's been by herself. This is really problematic for elephants to be alone because they're very, very, very social animals. They live in large matriarchal tribes. They also travel vast distances every day, which is important for their foot health. And when they're confined in zoos, they almost always have horrible foot problems, which Lucy certainly has. Mm. She apparently has a respiratory issue as well. Uh, so so there's evidence, there's a lot of evidence, actually, that she may be suffering and uh, may not be enjoying her life. So in an effort to try to get justice and address the situation for Lucy, uh, I guess we should start back in, was it 2008 it's, it's when the cases were first? Yeah, it's crazy yeah, it's how long back. this has taken. Like, that's one of the things that, you know, justice is slow. And there's an old saying, justice delayed is justice denied. And that's very likely to be true in this case, uh, as we'll get into. But but this case started way back. I'm not sure when the originating application was, was first filed, but I'm guessing it was, you're right, I think it was around 2008. Yeah, 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 very long time ago. So uh, a couple of groups got together, PETA, Zuchak, and uh, Tova Reese, and Voice for Animals, some couple local Edmonton folks and groups. Uh, they sought a declaration in court that the Edmonton Zoo was in violation of the Provincial Animal Protection Act in Alberta for their treatment of Lucy. Yeah, exactly. And that was their original uh, um, application before the court. And that went to uh, the Court of Queen's Bench, which is the superior court in the province where they lost. And then it went up to the Court of Appeal where they lost again. And they lost for a number of reasons in that case. But the main one was that the well, it was twofold. One, uh, the court decided they did not have standing um, or essentially the, the interest to litigate this case. And the court also suggested that they were bringing this the wrong way. It was the wrong form of action. So essentially, it was wrong to sort of seek a declaration that the province was in a violation of the law. And there was a very famous dissent in that case that we've already adverted to in this case, uh, but on this podcast by uh, Chief Justice Catherine Fraser, who took a very open-minded look at the whole thing and recognized a couple of points, one being that, well, there might not be a perfect way to deal with this, but we need to look at novel remedies because the truth of the matter is, if we don't do that, no one will be able to speak for Lucy in court. That's right. And she really delved into the theory behind animal law, uh, some rights theory, some welfare theory, and uh, identified this problem that we have, which is that Unless an agency is willing to enforce a law, there is really a, v a very difficult path for anybody else to enforce it if, if the judgment of the Alberta Court of Appeal is correct. So she reviews why this is bad for animals and why it's also bad in a democracy that citizens have no way to review the actions of their government if they think the, act the government is acting inappropriately. 
or the the government is 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 using a law under inclusively effectively for its own benefit. That's one of the things that I think is the underplayed part of this case is that the city of Edmonton is not a private institution. It's essentially a public institution. So essentially what you have is you have the police policing the police to put it another way in in in, in a sense that this idea that they're all well they're all independent bodies but they're not. The city of Edmonton is a legislative essentially runs the Edmonton Zoo and they are essentially the creature underneath guess what the, the province of Edmund, uh, of Alberta and the question is well if if these people the province of Alberta are essentially responsible for policing themselves well who what can't we turn to the courts when there is a problem that requires some form of review that's that was the question in the first case and a majority of the court said no yeah they said you're out of luck so credit to the the folks who've been pushing for Lucy for many years and pushing to try to get her to a sanctuary in the U.S. where she would be doing much better and able to socialize with elephants, other elephants. Uh, so credit to them. They didn't give up after this decision. They decided recently, a couple of years ago now, that they would bring an application uh, to judicially review the issuance of a zoo license to the Edmonton Zoo. So this is a decision that the province has to make. The zoo applies for a license. It needs one, needs one to operate. And it must meet a certain number of criteria on the license application. And if it does, it's granted its license. So the province gives a license to the Edmonton Zoo, which is the city, to operate. Yeah. So essentially what happened in this case is, of course, they granted the Edmonton Zoo their permit or their renewal of their permit or whatever. And the group decided to challenge that. They felt, well, wait a minute. Um, what happened in the first case was that we were told that we couldn't just do this. We couldn't just create an application and ask for a declaration. So here what we've got is a form of government action. And what most people may not know is that when the government makes decisions that affect certain interests, in this case the interest being that of Lucy, um, you are able to seek what's called judicial review. And they wanted to seek judicial review of the decision to show that the decision was harming Lucy and frankly was not consistent with the government's own law in that it did not respect the need for Lucy as outlined in the Animal Protection Act. That's right. And the, the idea behind judicial review is that the government has to act lawfully. If it's acting improperly when it makes a decision, then uh, the decision should be struck down and, in some respect by the courts. It's certainly reviewable by the courts in that situation. So the claim here was that uh, as part of the license conditions, the zoo was required to to follow the standards set out in the Animal Protection Act. So because Lucy's treatment arguably violates the standards in the Animal Protection Act, the group says this license that uh, has been granted uh, should not have been granted, so you should set the license aside, essentially. <clears throat> That's what they tried to do. They, Interestingly, Peter, they ran into the same judge at the trial level who decided their original case. And do you think this judge was any more receptive this time around? He was less receptive, Camille, wasn't he? In fact, he was. Not only did he, uh, I mean, he basically found against them on every possible issue he could. So let's deal first with issue number one, which is whether they had standing to bring this case. So they argued that they had public interest standing. There is a three-factor test in Canadian law that a nonprofit group or someone else would have to present and, and show that they meet this criteria to bring a case to court. So the first one is whether there's a real and justiciable issue here. So that's essentially asking, like, is there a legitimate legal issue that the case is trying to address? And 
the judge said, no, it's not a legal issue or it's not a legitimate issue at all because he, he said that the Animal Protection Act standards aren't actually required at all in the zoo licensing regime, hmm. which we'll, we'll, maybe we'll go through the, we'll the factors that, and come yeah. back and criticize this decision. <laughs> Second issue, do does the applicant who seeks standing have a genuine stake in the outcome of the case that they're, they're bringing forward? Hmm. So you might think, well, it's a pretty easy case to make here. There are animal protection groups. This is an animal protection issue. But the judge, again, said no. He said that their concern was Lucy's well-being. Their concern was not whether the zoo license was improperly issued, as if those are somehow two different issues. And by the way, and, to save time, Camille, what you're saying is also the majority decision at the Court of Appeal. Like you are describing the trial judge's decision, the Court of Appeal virtually adopted most of this. Yeah, that, that's right. Certainly on the standing issue, they basically uh, agreed with everything he said, or at least said they wouldn't overturn it. And then the third uh, third issue on standing is whether the case is a reasonable way of bringing the, th- the issue before the court. And again, and quite frustratingly, the courts both said no. Uh, they essentially said this isn't the right venue. This isn't the right type of claim you should be bringing. They suggested again that uh, private prosecution or simply simply uh, making a complaint to an agency would be the right way to do it because agencies with law enforcement powers can determine whether the Animal Protection Act has been violated. Which is which is so kind of ridiculous, by the way, which is kind of ridiculous because they did complain to the Edmonton Humane Society and the Edmonton Humane Society said refused to act. So like the idea is what I think the judge is trying to say is, well, that is your recourse. You can complain. You have no other yeah. recourse um, that we can see. Or what, what, what is the most annoying, the judge effectively just says, well, what you're trying to do is not the right way to do it, but we're not necessarily going to tell you what another legal way of doing it is. And that's, that's what they did in the first case. In the 2011 yeah. case, the Court of Appeal did exactly the same thing. It said, this is not the right way to proceed. We'll let you guess what that way one might be if there is one. Yeah, you go figure it out for yourself. We're not going to give you any guidance on that. And, you know, then there's the issue of uh, private prosecution, which was raised as a potential option. And that strikes me as a completely ridiculous suggestion as well. Like with a private prosecution, for anyone who's not familiar with this, individuals do have the right to lay private charges in Canada under our system. But the Crown always has the ability to withdraw those charges. So, you know, essentially, uh, in this case... When we're talking about uh, oversight over those charges that somebody might lay, the oversight would be by the province and the city itself. So, you know, it's essentially the government deciding for itself whether those charges would proceed. Once again, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was the issue of public interest. The Court of Appeal essentially agreed with the, the trial judge. There was another issue that the trial judge did get overturned on. He he called the application an abusive process. He said that it was a collateral attack on determining whether the zoo is in violation of the Animal Protection Act. So a collateral attack kind of means that you're trying to get about a case and, and attack a previous decision that was made on a case mm. in another way. So it's, instead of just letting that decision stand, you're going after it from sort of an inappropriate angle. And it was good, at least, that the Court of Appeal did reject this and, and said it was um, not a collateral attack in this case. But well, the reason well, that was I don't see important, how it can be a collateral attack when essentially the court in the first case was telling them you have to bring it another way. So they did. 
Like that's it doesn't it doesn't make sense that something is a collateral attack when you when your original way of proceeding is quashed. The court says you can't do it this way. You've got to do it another way. You're not collateral attacking because you're not attacking the original court's judgment. You're complying with it, which is what I well, understand the court said in the second case. That's right. And and to have a collateral attack, there would have to be some sort of determination about whether the zoo was violating the mm. law. And that issue never got discussed. It never got decided. All that this, all that any of these cases have ever dealt with is preliminary standing issues. So we've never got to that central issue. So there can't be a collateral attack. And that's actually what the dissenting judge at the Court of Appeal pointed out. Right. Well, very interesting. Um, this goes back to the Court of Appeal in March of 2018. It takes a year and almost three months to decide. And once again, we have the exact same judgment as last time. Uh, two judges in the majority saying uh, this cannot proceed and one judge dissenting saying it should. Yeah, that's right. So we, we kind of have told you already, spoilers, uh, about what the majority said. They agreed with the trial judge on almost all respects, except they, they rejected the abusive process claim. Uh, but there was a really interesting dissent, and mm. I took some consolation from the dissent, despite the fact that it wasn't a win. But the judge in dissent uh, actually has many of the points that we've already critiqued the court on. He's made those for himself. And he talks extensively about some of the important issues uh, about why animal protection legislation serves a vital and important purpose and why the government should not be immune from scrutiny if it ignores its obligations. Yeah, it's not as uh, wide-ranging a dissent as Chief Justice Fraser's in the 2011 case, but in my opinion, it's no less effective. And to be honest, it's a must-read for anyone interested in animal law in this country. I think the judge sort of gets succinctly to the point, uh, noticing that there's a shift in animals regarding the acceptable treatment of animals, a shift in attitudes, excuse me, and pointing out that although there is protection in law, this protection will remain ineffective so long as citizens are unable to challenge alleged unlawful treatment of animals by government. That's the point I was making earlier. This idea that the government cannot be immune from these laws when they have animals in their care. And there has to be a way to review uh, that law. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. He notes that there's uh, certainly a, an absence of means through which animal rights can be meaningfully heard in the judicial system. And there's often inadequate enforcement because the public at this point doesn't have meaningful ways to access a mechanism to hold the government to account. So this is, uh, he's, he's pointing out the problem. I wish that we had a solution to this because I wish that his decision was in the majority. Yeah, I think there's, you know, what's, what's good about this decision is that I think the judge, it, it's a little bit different by the way, um, from, from Justice Fraser's decision in the first, in the first case. In, in the first case, it seems to me, I don't want to you know, get into Justice Fraser's head and, and say what she was thinking, but it seemed to me that Justice Fraser recognized that what the, the appellants were trying to do wasn't perfect, but sort of felt that it was necessary to extend the concept of standing because there had to be a way to review the issue in the case. In other words, it was so substantively important that it needed to be done. Does that sound, you know, it's sort of what was going on? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what she was trying to get at. In yeah. this case, is, 
Well, this different. case was a little different to me because I think what the judge, he did that as well. Don't get me wrong. But the judge, the judge did both. The judge found, first of all, saying, well, look, animals are important. We need to find ways to get them in the courtroom. We've got to be creative. But more importantly, he just totally rejects the majority's opinion of whether or not the zoo regulations actually do what the majority says they do. Like, essentially, to me, that's the most compelling part of his judgment is when he says, According to the majority, more or less, the zoo regulations have no purpose. That's essentially what they are. Uh, they, and, and that's what drives me crazy is that the Alberta government on past occasions has talked about their zoo regulations as being, you know, they're one of the few provinces with zoo regulations. And these zoo regulations are a way of protecting animals and of making sure that we can have confidence in our zoos. Oh, but by the way... They don't actually do anything. They're just, you know, a licensing regime with, with no real teeth. And what the judge says is that's like a ridiculous way of looking at zoo animal protection. And it's a wonderful part of the judgment for those of you um, who wish to read it. It's essentially at paragraph 79 when the judge says it's fully, uh, the, this proposed interpretation is inconsistent with reading the, 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 the wildlife regulations and then goes on to say that, you know, it would be kind of, ridiculous if we didn't look at it this way. It just makes no sense to essentially um, have these zoo regulations. Sorry, this is at paragraph 86. Let me just read this because this is good, Camille. You'll like this part. On a more principled level, the chamber's judge's proposed reading of the legislation undercuts the purpose of zoo regulation. If the renewal of zoo permits depends only on the matters the chamber's judge suggests, matters such as a $100 fee and an animal inventory, the licensing process would serve no meaningful purpose. Issuance of a zoo permit would have no connection to compliance with the commitment to treat animals humanely, and then goes on to say, like, what would be the point of doing that? Why would we have zoo uh, regulation? So I think the judge really, that's why I say it's sort of different from what happened in the first case, is the judge approaches this case both as being substantively correct and of needing to recognize a broader approach to standing so that we can ensure that these interests are uh, litigatable before the courts. Yes, this case does get in, in, in much more detail to some of the actual legal issues because they consider them in the test for standing, which is interesting to me. Um, I, I actually think, uh, well, I, I mean, one other point to sort of pick at with the majority is it's kind of really surprising to me. I, I don't recall having really seen this in other cases about public interest standing, that on the first branch of that test, whether there's a real and justiciable interest, you know, I think the norm is kind of to take it a prima facie that there is, whereas they go into quite some detail and sort of twist themselves into mental pretzels, I think, to decide at the outset that there's not, when to me, this is something that should definitely be decided at, at trial, like assuming that there's some sort of issue here, some sort of arguable legal issue, they should let them in the door on that basis. And I, and I like that the chamber's judge, sorry, that the uh, dissenting judge goes through and, and essentially agrees with that. Well, yeah, exactly. And we're back to that whole idea, you know, from the first case of what interest is the standing requirement designed to serve? And that's that's the question. Like realistically, you know, if the scope of the litigate, uh, the scope of the this particular legislation and what it's designed to do in the entirety of the process is something that needs to be looked at, then that's something that should be looked at at a trial. And, and, and you shouldn't just decide it in a preliminary application that there's no reason to go forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the dissenting judge roundly rejects all of the arguments um, and the decision put forward by the majority, which is, which is good to see, and rightfully so. But 
unfortunately, he's dissenting. It's so kind of it's kind of deja vu, Camille. I feel like we've been here before. Yeah. In yeah, fact, I feel familiar, like one of it? us, one of us, the one of us that was not in law school at the time, might have written a whole article explaining why the next step should have been to get leave from the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, that's right. They sought leave last time, last time, and they were denied leave. So I do hope they're going to seek leave to appeal this one too, because it's it's interesting to think of how much has shifted since twenty. Mm. I think it was twenty twelve when that leave decision came out and it was rejected. Uh, that's now seven years ago, and the field of animal law has has expanded exponentially in that time. We now have Supreme Court jurisprudence. We've got uh, many more appellate level decisions, and uh, the atmosphere and the feeling about where we need to go for animals as as a country with our legal system is definitely tangibly changed. So I do hope the Supreme Court will be more willing to engage with this issue than they were the last one. Well, first of all, it's up to the litigants to decide firmly that they want to go forward. I can't speak for them. I have spoken with them. Um, I know there is at least interest in discussing it and seeing if it's a worthwhile case. I mean, you can't just say they should or they shouldn't. There are costs involved. Uh, Last time they were hit with pretty significant costs awards. So there are potential costs of going forward. But I I agree with you. I do think there's room to to go forward with this and try and raise these issues again, because I, I just think that a lot has changed. And frankly, to have now two effectively dissenting judgments um, from a major appellate bench is something significant that's got to show the Supreme Court that this is an issue that has changed, uh, that the, the, the perception of this issue as one of national importance is one that's got to be seen differently. And if they like, I, I already, you know, I wrote an entire article explaining why I thought the Supreme Court totally missed the boat in deciding whether this was a significant issue to go forward. I think this is exactly the type of case that the Supreme Court should hear. Now, one thing that worries me, uh, Camille, and frankly worries just about everybody involved in this case, is that we might not have the time to hear it um, in the sense that there is real uh, deep-seated concern about Lucy's health and about whether uh, she would make it through a Supreme Court hearing which would effectively, at least in theory, I don't want to get too far into the legal weeds here, it might render the issue moot in the fact that there's nothing left to stand for if Lucy's no longer around uh, to benefit from a decision. Yeah, and that's the horrible context here is that this is about someone's actual life, someone who's been in a horrible situation for many, many years, and so the groups who are bringing these cases forward are simply trying to get her out of it. And Oh, if we were to run out of time after all of this work that's gone in, it would be heartbreaking. So, yeah, it's really we'll something. You- there's so many. There's so many tough parts of this uh, hanging around the edges. And and frankly, we've got to give a shout out. I mean, as I said, I had lunch with uh, Tove, uh, Tova and some of the group last week, and we had a long talk. And they're they're devastated by the decision. Um, you know, they obviously are excited enough. Trust me, it's hard to get a dissenting opinion from the court of appeal. Uh, but they're they're pleased with that, obviously, but very devastated and obviously thinking hard about what to do going forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can rest assured that we will be following this case. Very, we very will. important for for all kinds of reasons. So uh, stay tuned to Pawn Order for your next update on Lucy the Elephant. In case you're wondering, by the way, one last note um, how this process works. Uh, normally, a group that loses a case has uh, two months to appeal, or sorry, to decide whether or not to seek leave to appeal. We've talked about what that means in the past. Essentially, the Supreme Court has to grant permission before you can appeal. 
normally that would be two months, which would be July 24th. Um, the Supreme Court does not count the month of July, so it's uh, omitted from the calendar on the basis that everybody deserves a break of a month. So essentially, they have until August 24th to decide um, whether or not they wish to seek leave to appeal. My guess is they would get it in before that, but that would be the absolute deadline. So we'll stay tuned um, and update you on this story through the summer. All right, it is now time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Oh, we got some good ones, right, Camille? Yeah, yeah, we do. We have a really great hero this this episode that I'm so excited to give a shout out to. It's NDP Member of Parliament Nathan Cullen. He has emerged as a true hero for uh, one really key reason, which is that he's helping the whale and dolphin bill get to a final b- vote before we run out of time. So the way it works is if you've got a private member's bill, you have to uh, kind of go through this process of being in a certain order on, on a list and wait until your bill gets to the top of the list before you can speak to it and debate it. But there's a possibility of trading with other people on the list. So if somebody's higher up, they could trade with you. And Elizabeth May is a sponsor of Bill S203 to, to protect whales and dolphins from captivity. Uh, her spot wasn't coming up until probably too late to get the bill passed. She was mm. at the very end of the parliamentary session. So Nathan Cullen of the NDP very, very generously offered to trade his spot with her. He had a, a really great bill as well, actually. So it's a huge deal that he has given up this spot. His bill would have banned single-use uh, plastics, which I think we can all agree is a really, really important goal and really, really noble piece of legislation. But because it was so late in the session and his bill hadn't progressed very far yet, there was pretty much no chance it was going to pass into law. So the fact that he made this trade is incredibly selfless, uh, but of course, really forward-thinking and, and really keeps the whales and dolphins top of mind. So thank you so much, Nathan Cullen, for this. He is ensuring that uh, the whale and dolphin bill is going to pass. Yeah, that was really wonderful. We really appreciate it. And given the importance of the bill, it was great uh, to get uh, that uh, into the parliamentary session, especially since we are fighting time. Right, Camille? That is our enemy. Yeah, time is our enemy at this point. We've got lots of support, but we were running out of time and now we're not. So thanks to Nathan Cullen for that. So um, our zero this week, I got to tell you, Camille, after reading this story in great depth, I I have a, 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 for me, it's a toss up as to whether the zero is, as we discussed, Martha McDevitt, or frankly, just the CBC News for publishing this story, which seems like it's designed to be an ad for the Cherry Brook Zoo. But yeah. Let me, I mean, honestly, I read this story and I'm like, did she just write it as a press release? Like, or did anybody actually vet any part of what's going on here? In any event, this is about the Cherry Brook Zoo. We've talked about the Cherry Brook Zoo in the past in the fact that um, there were some uh, guinea pigs that were killed there in a way that was regarded as problematic by the New Brunswick SPCA. The New Brunswick SPCA recommended charges under not only the Provincial Act, but under the Criminal Code. And for reasons we don't know, so we have to be careful here, um, the Crown prosecutors decided not to lay any charges. Now, as we talked about on a past episode, next thing that happened was CASA, Camille, CASA, Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, a group of zoo organizers who essentially write rules for themselves, 
you know, I'm paraphrasing, but hey, um, decided everything was hunky-dory. So now we have this story where uh, Martha McDevitt, who is, I believe, the zoo owner. Does that sound about right? Uh, executive director, according the to executive the article. Executive director of Cherry Brook Zoo um, says quite a few things in this article, uh, essentially saying how this is the worst thing ever and the publicity has just devastated Cherry, uh, Cher- God, I got to get this right, Cherry Brook Zoo. And as a result, we should all feel bad that we've been so mean to the people at Cherry Brook Zoo. Did I, maybe I got that wrong. No, no, that's that's completely accurate. And not only should the public feel bad about this, but Martha McDevitt is actually threatening to kill between 40 and 70 percent of the animals. She says they might have to be, quote unquote, euthanized if the zoo shuts down because many of them are elderly and other facilities won't want them. Yeah, I I love that. Has Martha researched (laughs) this? Has she checked with any other organizations that might be willing to take these? No, 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 no. Why do that, Camille, when you can make threats that, as far as I can tell from this article, are designed to get people coming back to the zoo? Yeah, yeah. The whole article is basically just a publicity piece for for the zoo. They're calling on people to come forward, step up. They say the community surprises them and amazes them, and it has done so in the past, and it has to do so again. And... (laughs) And I love this. Um, There's so many good this, lines in here, Camille. So many, so many good lines here. I love, I particularly love the last heading in the article. It says, oh, yeah. we'll keep fighting for the animals. So the news article is saying that the zoo staff are like fighting for the animals. I, I, I wouldn't describe what the zoo does as fighting for animals. That's actually animal justice's tagline, leading the legal fight for animal protection. I think we fight for animal protection. I think the zoo fights for profit. I like that one. And then when she says the animals are going to be euthanized, she ends by saying, we are in a very, very scary place, she said, which is funny, Camille, because that's what the animals say. Ba-dum-bum. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what the animals Shall- of Cherrybrook Zoo say. We're in a very scary, scary place, especially when 40 to 70 percent of us are going to be killed if you don't have enough money from sponsorships in the community to keep us alive. It's just it's just an amazing the whole thing is one. And it's just crazy that none of these things are tested, which is why I think the CBC is, uh, you know, just as bad in this. But essentially, oh, well, we think McDevitt, by the way, Camille. Here's one. Invited citizens to go to the zoo. Of course, that's the whole point of this article. To see the animals and meet the staff, Camille. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this, this just is maddening to me, Peter. The it's animals need maddening. us, Camille, and we're going to be there every single day. This, this, this piousness of zoo owners in this country never ceases to amaze me. The people at Marineland no. say the same thing. They they oh. need us. We are there for them every single day. They act more like an animal rescue or a sanctuary oh, instead yeah. of a facility designed to keep captive in prison and exploit these animals who don't deserve to be behind bars. Well, it's, because uh, because at the same time, Camille, the zoo is struggling to recoup hundreds of thousands of dollars lost due to the fear online. You know, I'm going to get worked up, Camille, because all of this just drives me crazy to no end. It's not as if these animals are like, you know, 
wildlife rescues. These are animals that have been put together and put in place. And believe me, Cherrybrook Zoo is not just worried about the elderly animals. Cherrybrook Zoo is an ongoing economic concern and will continue breeding and bringing in new animals for as long as it is profitable. And then as soon as it's not profitable, it threatens to kill all the animals and says, hey, community, come support us so we can have more animals. I mean, it's just maddening. Yeah, yeah. No, the people have spoken with their dollars. People hear about zoo cruelty and they don't want to go. And that's what's happened. That's why they're losing money. And their response to that is like, oh, but we're going to kill the animals unless you come back. So they're Camille, you're just misled. These animals are like family. They're like our little babies, Camille. Oh, that's what they always say. We're in a scary place. Oh, sorry. That was the animal speaking again. All right. Anyway, <laughs> I, it's, it's honestly, this could be our first tie. I think this article is so badly written from CBC New Brunswick in, in that it's essentially, you know, we're putting in all the critique. You don't see any of this critique in the article. It's just like this puff piece for Martha McDevitt and the Cherrybrook Zoo. So um, I think we're going to share yep. the zero this month. We'll give it out to the Fair CBC enough. and Martha together. A first for Paw and Order, right, Camille? We're always in the business of making firsts. All right, well, that right. brings us to the end of a, a very filling episode of Pawn Order. Pleasure to speak with you again, Camille, and uh, look forward to doing it again soon. Bye for now. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pawn Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. 